This is Pittsburgh Explainer from 90.5 WESA. Every week we help you catch up on the headlines from southwestern Pennsylvania. It's Friday, March 12th. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Liz Reed. More than a quarter of Allegheny County residents have now received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. As the pace of vaccination picks up, many of us are seeing a light at the end of this long pandemic tunnel. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention now says fully vaccinated people can hang out together indoors without masks and that low-risk people can join too. But there's one group of vaccinated people that is still quite isolated, residents of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. WESA's Sarah Bowden is here to explain. Sarah, thanks for being on the show. Always great to talk to you. It's been a long, lonely year for these residents. Um, Can you tell me about one of them that you talked to? Yeah, I spoke with this woman named Jan McGrath. She lives at Westminster Place in Oakmont. It's a licensed personal care home, and she lives there with her husband, Bill. Um, She's a retired RN. She has eight kids and 26 grandchildren, 13 great-grandchildren. She's just... She was just a really lovely lady. I enjoyed speaking with her, and she said that um, the past year has been super boring for her and pretty depressing, like I think for a lot of us this past year has been depressing, Um, and she is fully vaccinated now, and she's really ready for to just start living her normal life again. So just this week, the federal government relaxed guidelines about visitors to long-term care facilities. What are the changes? Yeah, so I'm still digesting all these changes, but uh, now indoor visits, according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, should be allowed at nursing homes. I don't know why, by the way, why they specified nursing homes and not all long-term care facilities, but I'm assuming because nursing homes are the highest level of medical care that these rules can be expanded to other long-term care facilities. Um, But uh, the new rules say that indoor visits are allowed even if the people visiting, including the resident of the nursing home, is unvaccinated. And that's because um, nursing homes and other long-term care facilities throughout the country, as we've seen vaccination rates go up among those populations, uh, we've seen fatalities and case counts go way down, which has been really, really cool to watch. And because, you know, people have been really isolated, it's time to allow them to start having in-person inside visits again, even though outdoor visits are uh, still preferred. And also uh, the guidance says that uh, people can even hug, provided that they wear masks. And if they're vaccinated, a hug is allowed for a vaccinated person. And I think that this is like a really big deal. Something Jan McGrath, I'm sure, would be glad to hear. Is it possible some facilities will stay locked down, though? These are just guidelines. This is not a mandate. Right. So, I mean, lockdown is kind of... Everyone, every facility has their own rules and different states have different rules. So lockdown is sort of um, kind of an imprecise term, though I know why we use it, because it's also a term that is descriptive of how we feel. But for example, um, right now at uh, Jan McGrath's personal care home, Westminster Place, they have already been allowing uh, in-person visits. But these visits have to be physically distanced, so no hugs, and they can't take place in a person's room or apartment. They have to be have to take place in a 
sitting room in the facility that then gets thoroughly cleaned after each visit. Maybe this will change in the near future uh, with these new rules. We'll see. Also, um, a lot of facilities, including the one that Jan lives at, they're not doing communal dining. They still have their trays brought to them. They still have to wear masks when they go out into the hallway. Um, I think some of these rules will probably stay in place for a little while, or maybe some restrictions might be lessened. But I don't think, let's throw the doors off. Let's go back to normal. I don't think these facilities are ready to do that yet. And I don't think it would be wise to do that yet because there are still people in these facilities that are unvaccinated and medically vulnerable. What role also does, you know, community spread, what's going on outside of the facilities have to do with how restrictive they need to be inside the facilities? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the CMS guidelines uh, talk about how these new guidelines don't apply to communities where there's more than a, I believe it's like a 10% positive test positivity rate. And that's because when there's a high level of virus circulating uh, in a community, it's really hard to keep that virus to keep the coronavirus outside of a personal care home or a nursing home. And that's because, you know, people, delivery people, residents uh, for medical visits, staff, you know, they're coming in and out of the facility every day. It's not like they're vacuum sealed inside. Um, And so therefore, the more unvaccinated people there are, the more people there are with coronavirus in a community, the more dangerous it is for these personal care homes, for these nursing homes, for these assisted living homes, where there are elderly and medically vulnerable people who are very vulnerable to dying from COVID-19. Sarah, thanks so much for your reporting. Thanks, Liz. It's time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Noelle King from NPR. There's a lot to keep up with in the news. And one way you can help, donate that vehicle you're not using anymore. It could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Thank you, and here's how to get started. Visit wesa.fm slash cars. Allegheny County Council has passed a bill mandating paid sick leave for workers. The rule would require companies with more than 25 employees to offer five paid sick days to full-time staff. Two-thirds of counselors voted for it, all of them Democrats. WESA's Onley Herring has been covering this measure since it was introduced nearly a year ago. Onley, welcome back to Explainer. Thanks, Liz. Happy to be here. When I was preparing to talk to you, I went back through your coverage of this story, and I literally LOL'd when I read your first headline, Allegheny County Council plans hearings on sick leave bill aims for September. It is very much not September. Clearly, council didn't think it would take this long to get here. What were the main sticking points with this bill? Yeah, it has been a long and winding path from when the bill was first introduced back in April of last year, and there were a host of issues that were debated in committee that took some time just to talk through and vote on. Um, One of them was the, the size of the businesses that would be covered by this bill, and you noted that it only covers businesses with uh, more than 25 employees, and that's um, because it was the bill was amended in committee. There was concern that smaller businesses especially would be unduly burdened by being required to offer employees paid sick days. There was also some debate on who should be covered by the bill. Um, Republican Cindy Kirk had introduced an amendment that would have excluded substitute teachers 
Um, some also thought that unionized workers shouldn't be included because they're covered by their collective bargaining agreements, which deals with things like uh, sick time or any other benefits. Um, and then there is also the thought among some that because of the pandemic, the legislation shouldn't take effect as soon as it's slated to if it is signed into law. The way it's written now, it could take effect this year, um, most likely, but some of the proposals in committee would have delayed that until 2022 or 2023 or peg the start date to the end of the state of emergency due to the pandemic. I found it interesting that both sides of the debate used the pandemic as a reason to either pass this now or not pass it now. What were those arguments? Yeah, that that is an issue that really does cut both ways. Uh, the Democrats who first introduced this bill, they say that COVID-19 is even more reason to put this policy in place because by letting workers stay home when they're sick, you help them to stop the spread of disease like COVID-19 because they're not interacting with their coworkers or customers. On the other side of that issue are people who say that this is the worst time to be implementing this type of policy because businesses that are already struggling because of the economic toll of the pandemic can't take on another obligation. Um, and, and in ordinary times, they would say that this also creates a whole other set of compliance burdens, um, especially for businesses that have locations inside the county and outside the county. They're going to have to be tracking hours in different ways, depending on where their workers are located. So you mentioned that this could go into effect later this year if uh, the county executive signs it. Has he signaled whether or not he will sign it? He hasn't yet said whether he'll sign it. Even if Fitzgerald were to veto this bill, it's possible that it wouldn't really matter because the bill passed with a veto-proof majority, a two-thirds vote of council, and assuming everyone were to take the same vote again if the bill were sent back because it's vetoed, it would, it would still pass because it has enough support. The executive, though, did raise concerns when I reached out before the vote, just trying to take his temperature about whether the sick leave policy would be legal. He worries that county council actually might not have the authority to pass health regulations, which this paid sick leave bill would be considered to be because it's meant to stop the spread of disease. Under state law, it's possible that the county board of health has that responsibility and the sole authority to be drafting these types of rules. Although there's some debate about that, uh, people who think that it's not legal for council to do what it's trying to do point to a state Supreme Court decision about a paid sick days ordinance in the city of Pittsburgh, which seemed to say that counties might need their boards of health to pass these types of laws, or at least to draft these types of laws. But the court didn't really explicitly say whether that's necessary. So right now, there is some speculation and expectation that if Fitzgerald does sign this bill into law, that it will soon face a lawsuit. 
And it's worth noting when Pittsburgh passed that similar sick leave bill that was challenged in court and it was upheld as legal. Anli, thanks so much for explaining this on the show today. Yeah, thank you. It's time for another break. Stay with us. March is Women's History Month. Throughout the month, we'll be showcasing great women in our monthly on-demand music stream. Join WYEP as we celebrate. You'll be able to listen to a playlist of some of the best women in music and bands led by women. Go to WYEP.org slash March. Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto has drawn a third challenger in this spring's Democratic primary. Some see the two-term incumbent as vulnerable, and critics have lambasted him for his response to racial justice protests last summer. WESA's Chris Potter is here with more. Potter, welcome back to Explainer. Always good to be with you, Liz. Okay, so we now have four people running for mayor of Pittsburgh. Who are they? Well, of course, a couple of these names are familiar to us. Uh, State Representative Ed Ganey uh, announced his campaign in January. Uh, Tony Moreno, who's a retired police officer, announced his campaign way back in September of 2019. Uh, The new sort of surprise entrant is a guy named Mike Thompson. Uh, about whom I can tell you very, very little. Uh, he's a resident of Oakland. His name had not been previously uh, circulated very widely as a candidate here. Um, he has a campaign website, uh, which identifies him as a uh, a rideshare driver uh, and a, a tutor. Um, judging from some of his campaign rhetoric, he too uh, sounds like he will be challenging the current administration and the direction of the city from the left, he's arguing that uh, the city doesn't do enough for uh, working class people, people of color, um, because it's too beholden to the interests of the wealthy and powerful. Now, what I've sort of seen in Pittsburgh politics over the last seven and a half years that I've lived here is that when an incumbent has a lot of challengers, the incumbent usually wins. That's a that's a fairly consistent law in politics outside of Pittsburgh as well as inside it. Generally, elections like this, they always say, are sort of you know referendums on the incumbent. And the problem is, is if there's multiple people challenging the incumbent, even if a majority of people have said this incumbent is terrible, they are likely to sort of uh, they they may not necessarily all settle on the same candidate to to be the person who boots that uh, the the incumbent from office. Uh, locally here, I think the best example of this, and we've seen it a couple of times, uh, is City Council District Nine. Uh, Ricky Burgess, who has been in that position for a few cycles now, has I think maybe only once actually cleared fifty percent of the vote, and even then it was. Just barely, he'll get 47, 48, 49 percent of the vote. Um, but uh, the, the the sort of opposition is divided amongst three, four candidates, and so he's always able to kind of coast through, even without uh, getting a majority of the people in his own district. It's notable too that Ed Ganey uh, was the candidate who got the endorsement of the Allegheny County Democratic Committee. How did that come to be? Yeah, so the, for those who don't know, the Allegheny County Democratic Committee is basically made up of uh, people, committee people, who are either elected or selected uh, from every ward and voting precinct uh, all across the county. And what they do a couple of months before a primary is they get together and they endorse candidates for the Democratic primary. This is kind of like a uh, seal of a approval or a thumbs up from party insiders. You also, if you get the endorsement, you get to like appear on the slate cards that sometimes get mailed to people or handed out at the polls. Um, Ed Ganey, as you say, did did win the endorsement uh, last weekend. Um, and not terribly surprising, uh, Ed has been a committee member himself for many years. Bill Peduto, the incumbent, did not seek the endorsement at all. So the only person who was really challenging Ed Ganey for it was Tony Moreno. 
And Moreno, um, as I reported, had been a Democrat for many years, then switched parties uh, in 2018, then switched back just a couple weeks before running for mayor. Uh, others have reported that he um, also on social media had made some pro-Trump statements a couple years ago. So a lot of people were really concerned uh, about how well Tony Moreno was going to do. And he actually got 40 percent of the vote, a little less than that, uh, a little more than that, rather. Um, so Ed Ganey wins the endorsement about 59 to 41 percent. And, you know, a lot of people think that was a heck of a lot of support for Tony Moreno, given that he's a first time candidate uh, with a sort of uh, kind of ambivalent uh, relationship to the Democratic Party in recent years. Um, But, you know, a win's a win. And uh, Ed Ganey now has the backing of the party. And that was important for him. Why didn't uh, Mayor Peduto seek the endorsement? Well, what the mayor will say um, is that he has concerns and has had for many years, as other people do, about the endorsement process itself. You know, I, the committee in the past has sometimes um, ignored candidates of color. It's ignored female candidates. It's ignored progressive candidates and younger candidates for more conservative Democrats seeking its its support. I mean, the truth is, is that if, if, if you sort of look at it in total, I think you'd say the Democratic committee is older uh, tends to be whiter, tends to be more conservative than a lot of voters, especially in the city. The Democratic Party nationally and to some extent locally, you know, has been moving somewhat to the left. The committee has not sort of kept pace with that. Um, so the mayor says, look, there are problems with the way this committee endorsement process runs, um, you know, and I just don't want any part of it. Now, that may all be true. And the mayor has for many, many years had a, a, a sort of difficult relationship with the committee. I will say that he sought the endorsement and got it in 2017. Um, so so he's not completely above this sort of thing, which also t- lends to the suspicion um, that the mayor wasn't sure that he would have the votes. And, you know, honestly, as I said before, Ed Ganey uh, doesn't have an ambiguous relationship with the committee. He has very warm relationships with a lot of people in it. And so if you're Bill Peduto, the the risk here of going in, seeking the endorsement and not getting it, that downside risk is a lot bigger than the, than the upside of winning the endorsement and getting it because, hey, you're the incumbent and you should be able to do that anyway. So for him, the, the risk reward factor probably really wasn't there. And I'm sure that was a factor as well as some of these concerns that truthfully he has voiced for many years, even before becoming mayor. Let's talk Pittsburgh City Council. What are the competitive races there? Yeah, this won't take long. <laughs> there are four races. Uh, there are four districts up for election. The even number districts two, four, six, eight. Um, only districts two and four um, have a um, have a contested primary at all. So uh, Daniel Lavelle in District Six um, will, and Erica Strasburger in District Eight are just going to go right through this primary um, with no opposition. They also there are no Republicans who are running in these races either. Um, the competitive races um, is one is in District Four. My colleague uh, Ariel Worthy was the first to report this that uh, Bethany uh, Cameron. Uh, is challenging the incumbent Anthony Coghill. She used to work for, uh, she was an a-, a council aide for Mr. Coghill's predecessor, Natalia Rudiak. The other contested race um, is in District 2. Incumbent Teresa Kale Smith um, faces a challenge from a guy named Jacob Williamson. He is a name I've heard a little bit uh, circulated around, but um, but that's it. Those are the only two um, contested races there. And, you know, it's going to be sleepy otherwise. Potter, thanks for catching us up on all this. All right. Thank you for having me. That's Pittsburgh Explainer for this week. Our show is produced by Katie Blackley. Larkin Page Jacobs is our managing editor. And this was her last episode of Explainer and her second to last week at WESA. Larkin, you have been such an invaluable resource for me and so many other journalists at the station. 
your candor, your sound judgment, and your guidance have been so appreciated. It is really not going to be the same newsroom without you. But on behalf of all of our colleagues, I wish you the best on your next adventure. You can find all of our news coverage at our website, WESA.FM, and of course on the air at 90.5 FM. I'm your host, Liz Reed. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week.